Elliot Smith. Being reasonable. Now heard on WHUP LP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina. Fasten your I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs, and we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we first speak with Rabbi Daniel Graber of Beth El Synagogue in Durham, North Carolina. He expresses his belief that all human life matters. Next, we speak with Bishop Ronald Godby of the River Church in Durham, North Carolina, as he discusses his belief and faith in Jesus Christ. But first up, Rabbi Daniel Graber of Bethel Synagogue. When I hear the word strong belief, a part of me pushes back a little bit, because I do think that one of the first things that should happen when you believe in God is right after that should come a deep, deep belief that you are not, and that you're not God, that you're not God, and 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 so all. Um, to me, all religion should be paired with a radical humility. And so there's a wonderful essay um, written by a colleague of mine. It's, I think the title is something like To um, Hold Firmly and Let Go, and, uh, and, or To Hug and to Let Go. And so when I have a strong belief, I also try to let go of it a little bit mm-hmm. um, because I don't think that I have access to perfect knowledge. I don't think that I have access to all the answers. And I don't think that my beliefs in God give me more of that. I actually think that um, they help me to humble and to, um, to hold my beliefs with, with humility. I think I would start with the belief that my life and that human life matters. Okay. And there's an image that I sometimes, you know, almost in meditation, I imagine myself, uh, you know, lying in bed and, and, you know, I have a wife and uh, three, three kids and we're in a house and we're in um, Durham, North Carolina. And I don't know how many residents there are of Durham now, but uh, you know, you, you know, go up a bit more and you get to the research triangle and go up a bit more and you get to North Carolina and then 
you know, to the United States. And how many people are there in the United States? 320, 340 million people. And there's four times that many people in China, right? There's a billion sure. people in, uh, more than a billion people in China. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the earth, when we look at it, you know, from the perspective of the solar system is, you know, just very tiny. And, and in the universe, we're spe- a speck of dust. And in some ways, the belief that my life matters in the middle of all that eternity um, is absurd. I see. And from the perspective of, of physics, there's no reason that my uh, physical life, you know, a bunch of water, carbon, whatever it is, should matter any more than, say, uh, a desk or, um, or or something like that. But I do believe in an existential way that if um, if a human life is broken, um, that matters in a in a qualitatively different way than if a chair gets broken. And when we say matters, matters to who? Hmm. Well, that's where we can use the word God uh, or to a creator or um, to something much larger than ourselves, whatever word you want to use to um, to describe. But, um, you know, I think that my belief in God comes from my belief that life matters um, rather than the other way around. In other words, rather than saying, you know, I believe in God and therefore life matters, um, to me, what's what I have no logic can't prove it, but what I would stake my life on is that my life and your life and the life of every um, human being matters in uh, in a deep way, um, is meaningful, uh, is is significant um, in a way that from the perspective of physics doesn't matter. And that leads me um, to a belief in um, in God or a belief in something larger uh, than myself. So the premise is that life matters, and because life matters, therefore I believe in a God or a creator or something like that. Did, did the, I summarize that correctly? I don't yes, the okay. approach, uh, there is a fancy philosophical term called phenomenological. Mm-hmm. And, and so my phenomenological experience, you know, the, the I experience the phenomenon of uh, of of a baby's life of my um, of of human life mattering and from that I derive um, a larger f- uh, philosophical belief a larger religious belief. How do you know this belief is true? I don't accept it's my experience. It's everything. You know every. Everything when I, you know, I imagine some of it came from my parents. I was blessed to grow up in a, in a family um, where I experienced love and where I experienced, um, where I was taught that mm-hmm. my own life matters and that all life matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I acknowledge that, right? Some of that just, you know, is the product of, of my own experience. It came from my parents. And I think that many people who um, grow up in very difficult circumstances, um, you know, uh, struggle, you know, can, can struggle, um, in some ways because of that. Um, but, um, I, I have no, like I said before, according to the laws of physics, 
Um, and my father was a theoretical astrophysicist. Uh, you know, there's no good reason why that's the case, but it is my experience. I think a first moment with the with God, a first moment with the Creator to a to a particular time. I um, when I graduated, when I finished up uh, my I, I did four years of uh, undergrad and then a year of graduate school, and I, I, I went off to, to Israel, and I remember I one of my best friends from high school uh, was in a mental hospital that summer, um, having uh, struggled with um, the possibility of suicide, and mm-hmm. um, another one of my best friends in the world um, was dying. He had leukemia, and his body... Um, had was was starting to degenerate from all of the treatments and um and i went to israel and felt some guilt about going um about whether it was right of me to go and to have an experience um i was going to study in the desert for uh, for six months and learn Mm -hmm. about judaism and hebrew um and you know i was very conflicted about that and um and we went on this camping trip and uh i got and some wine in me and uh, and wandered away from the campfire and sat down in a canyon um, as you know away from the campfire and uh, and just started to cry mm-hmm. and um, and to really let out you know all of the sadness and um, and pain that I was experiencing as to why um, people who I cared about were suffering and 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 why I feared that they were um, that I was going to lose them. And, and I, you know, through this, you know, I sort of let out a big cry and through this, you know, bottle of wine, uh, that I was carrying around with me and I laid down and just cried, um, in the desert. And I remember having this deep sense after a few minutes that as I looked up at the stars and I looked up at the darkness um, and the and the vastness of the desert behind me, and just having this deep sense of being held, um, that I wasn't alone, um, even though even though I felt that way very much. And it wasn't a it wasn't an answer. It wasn't sort of a you know. And this is why your friends are suffering, or this is why, etc. But it was an answer of a, of a different kind. And that was another, you know. I would say peak experience that I had. Uh, ultimately, I don't think those things are sustaining necessarily, but um, but it was a moment uh, for me of connection. So it seems like you've had these real powerful experiences and experiences that shaped you and shaped you. It seems that when you were in possibly vulnerable times in your life and you had things going on and hurting, this has led you to your belief, and to your feelings about God and your faith, how do you think you gravitated to this belief in this faith as opposed to maybe another belief in another faith? I'll answer the question in a few ways. Number one, I think that I was, while I was not raised in a household that was explicitly um, observant of traditional Jewish law in the way that I understand that now as a rabbi, 
Um, I was raised in a Jewish home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would go to synagogue sometimes. I can't say that I, it was a lot of faith experience. I experienced wisdom in the in the um, in, in the stories and the conversations. Uh, you know, I sang the prayers, but first of all, they were all in Hebrew, uh, and I didn't really. I experienced them more as sort of nice communal singing mm-hmm. um, rather than a particularly faithful experience. Um, but I was raised in a Jewish home. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I actually went to uh, Israel the summer before I had participated in something called the Maccabee Games, which is a sports festival for uh, Jews around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. It takes place every four years. Mm-hmm. And I had a very powerful experience in, in Israel. And, and I sort of realized that I didn't know anything or I knew very little about Judaism. I knew very little about my own faith and my own traditions. And so at the same time, I read a book called The Denial of Death, which is by Ernest Becker. It actually won the, um, the I think, the Pulitzer uh, I guess it wouldn't win the Pulitzer Prize, but it won a prize. Uh, I think it was written in 1974, where he describes human beings. I hope I can say this on your show. Uh, it's a strange phrase. He describes human beings as angels with anuses. And what he means by that is that human beings are creaturely. We do all the things that animals do. We um, defecate, we eat, we mm-hmm. procreate. Um, we uh, drink, you know, all the all those creaturely things, right. and yet we have a sense that our lives are not just uh, the life, the the anuses, but also the angels that that our lives transcend our creatureliness in some way, and um, and he argues not really from a religious perspective that. Uh, but just he describes how human beings build systems of meaning to transcend their creatureliness. So, for example, he says that sometimes we do this through um, through romance, through the romantic solution, where we see the stars in someone's eyes and we see the moonlight in their in their hair, and we and of course, love is a wonderful thing, but um, when we do that, he he argues that part of what we're doing is we're um, trying to have our attachment with an, a romantic attachment to another human being uh, help us to transcend the very um, problem of our own creatureliness. And we're sort of laying down these ideas, these poetic ideas of transcendence on the other person. The problem with that is that um, people, no person is perfect. No pe- No person... Uh, you know, doesn't wake up in the morning and have a bad day or, you know, just be crabby or, you know, or uh, disappoint us. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, we also do this not through romance, but also the most dangerous one is through children. Um, because our children, if we have biological children, our, our children are our genetic, you know, uh, the way that we throw our genes into the future, they're our sort of toss to eternity. The problem with that is that, you know, first of all, children... Uh, can can get sick and they can die and mm-hmm. and uh, and and he also says it probably explains why you see parents uh, screaming on the sidelines of softball and soccer games uh, in total out of proportion um, because there's a level of you know of investment there uh, in you know that the child is carrying and that's also it's not fair it's not fair to ask of any other human being. 
Um, he says, we, we do this with our work, with, with artists, you know, sort of try to create something of lasting eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, and begrudgingly, it's interesting, he comes to this conclusion that religions, at least while they're constructions, uh, they at least, you know, human, and he sort of, con- he would say they're human constructions. There's a piece of that that I, I concede as well. I don't think they're totally human constructions, but but um, they at least speak the language of ultimacy. They at least speak the language of transcendence uh, in a way that, you know, a, a person's job or a person's work of art or a, another human being is never really meant to um, address those uh, those 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 issues, and so I had read that. This is that was all a, a a byway to say I had read that before I went off to Israel, and and so I went to Israel really seeking to understand or to test the proposition: Could Judaism, as a system of meaning, uh, did it provide not the answers but cogent answers to the for the way in which I could live my life? to uh with transcendent meaning and what i found in israel is yes i think the jewish tradition is a beautiful um wise wonderful tradition but i don't think that everybody has to be jewish and i don't think that judaism is the only way to approach god or the only way in which to cogently answer those questions related to what you're saying and when asked this question on a more on an abstract level, is believing in something, and this belief has a positive effect on you, and it helps you live your life better, and it gives you guidance, and gives you a way to trail through this world, is that a good reason to believe in, the, in a belief? And does that speak to the truth value of a belief? I am what I'll call a theological pragmatist. So I don't, like I said before, I don't think that human beings have access to absolute truth. God may put absolute truth out there in the world, but it's always going to be mediated through human fallibility. And therefore I don't have access to to, to absolute truth. And, and therefore... I evaluate the truth value by the extent to which it brings more love and more comfort and more goodness into the world. So to come back to the book that I wrote, I wrote a book about my own struggles with God after the death of two close friends. And... my struggles with finding God. And and there's a classic philosophical conundrum of uh, called theodicy, which is if you say that God is all good and God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing and evil is exists, then you have a problem. And there are many different ways of solving that. Just by the way, all of those terms, God being all-knowing and all-powerful, those are Greek philosophical terms in the in the Bible and biblical Hebrew. There's no word for God being all-powerful. 
Um, the Bible never makes the claim that God is all powerful because there's no Hebrew word for it. It says God's very powerful, but not all powerful. But but so there, there are three different, there are lots of ways to, to get out of that conundrum. Um, you can say that God is, uh, you know, that, that evil isn't really evil. In other words, we experience it, but ultimately, you know, there's a plan that we don't understand. That's mm-hmm. what we mean when we say plan that we don't understand means the evil that you experience, even though it's really, really bad, isn't isn't really evil. It's just beyond your understanding. You can say that God is not all powerful, right? That the world just happens and God cares a lot and evil is real, but God actually can't step in and do everything. You can say that God is not all knowing that, you know, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. There, you can mm-hmm. resolve that in any way. And my criteria for how do you resolve that is um, what helps me to not only to find comfort for myself, but to comfort other people? And and what helps me to move forward? Thought experiment. I'm not a billionaire, but let's say I believed I was a billionaire. And because I believe in a, I was a billionaire, I gave more money to people. I was happier. I was more carefree. I treated people around me better. I treated my uh, wife better, my friends better. Uh, just the belief that I'm a billionaire, having that belief, I am acting with more love in the world and more fellowship to mankind. But that belief is not true. Is it okay to continue believing it in affecting good in the world? Or should someone try to live more tethered to quote-unquote reality and live what is true and real? Truth is not the ultimate value. This actually is, you find this in the Bible itself. There's a moment in the Bible where God speaks with Sarah and Sarah says something like, you know, am I to have children when my husband is so old? And when God relates the conversation to to, to Abraham, God says that Sarah said, am I to have children when I'm so old? So God lies. He misrepresents what Sarah said. Sarah said something negative about Abraham. Mm-hmm. And God said that, told Abraham that Sarah said something negative about herself. And the that's a moment where God in the Bible doesn't prioritize truth over hurting someone's feelings. And so I don't think that there's no place for truth, but I think that if my my question would be, what do you hope to achieve by telling that person the truth? It is objectively true. You are not a billionaire, okay? But that's one of many truths about your life. And I am also making a decision to disabuse you of that truth. And and the question I would ask is, why? What is the interest that you have in that truth? Does that interest serve better or worse purpose? Well, maybe what mm, my aim of the thought experiment was... Well, let, let me even say this okay. more sharply. You and I, we've been talking for a while. I think we respect each other enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not saying this about you in particular, but sure. but it, with the experiment, I think that 
I actually think that there is an arrogance in telling, you know, walking up to the person who believes there's a, they're a, mil, a million a billionaire and telling them, you know, you're really not a billionaire. And so there's an arrogance that you possess a piece of information which is more important for that person's life than they do or than, you know, that they need to know it somehow. And again, my beginning for all of this is I don't have all the answers and I want to I want to live with humility. And so I don't think you can disconnect the question. Your question was, you know, should you disabuse that person of their false belief? And my answer to that is, um, what is the interest that you have in doing so? I understand. Maybe the point I'm trying to get to is, let's say we live in this fictional country called Americastan. And let's say in Americastan, half the people believe in one set of truths as we're describing them. And another half of the people living in Americastan live in a, believe in another set of truths. And... You sure this is hypothetical, right? <laughs> <laughs> we live... Purposes. No, we live in a time when truth is under siege. So... You and, understand and it's where deeply, deeply problematic. So, with my thought experiment, what I'm mm -hmm. tr I'm trying to get at is that even though the truth, if I knew the truth, I wouldn't be as happy. I wouldn't be um, maybe as nice to people. I'm just hypothetically speaking, but could one say at that point? that at least there'd be some stronger commonality across all people because there are some basic things that we're agreeing on yes. and we're holding truth yes. to the highest regard as so, opposed to a tertiary. Well, and, and I should, I should correct a little bit of probably a misperception that I'm, you know, uh, up, up to this point there, the Talmud, there's a saying in the Talmud, right, which means God's seal is truth. Okay, the Jewish tradition doesn't... I give you an example of how truth is not an absolute value, but it's a very, very, very important value. And when Judaism is trying to figure out things, uh, how to act, how to move forward... It has a deep tradition of argumentation, and that argumentation is based upon logic. It's based upon evidence. It's based upon teasing out all of the nuances of a particular situation. That's basically what the Talmud is, uh, which is a 20, you know, many, many volume work, a, a monumental work, but with some of the finest logic, uh, you know, reasoning skills. And those are incredibly important. And so I think that part of what is critical for a functioning society is that argumentation based upon logic and based upon agreed upon sets of norms um, are the way in which we navigate, um, you know, we, we navigate disputes and we mm -hmm. figure out how to move forward. And, mm -hmm. and deep within the Jewish tradition is 
I think, a shared trust of the Socratic method, that through disputation, through back and forth arguing, um, based upon logic and not based upon, based upon what's called rational authority as opposed to character authority. Mm-hmm. And so, again, to come back to your example, I, you know, I want to know why you want to dissuade a person who's living a wonderful life right? They're, they're contributing to society. They're doing great things and they're happy, right? So what's the purpose of, you know, sort of disabusing them of, of, of a mistake, an intellectual mistake, but that's, you know, relatively insignificant, right? As opposed to there are deep, there's deep damage, which being, which is being done, uh, to take modern political, you know, issues, there are children in cages, mm-hmm. and there is a risk of nuclear war, based upon how you negotiate and mm-hmm. how you conduct diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Those are, you know, you should not be f- figuring those things out by charismatic authority. You should be figuring out issues of of state through uh, through logic and through reason and through rational discourse. We're trying to agree on things. And, and it seems that logic is something maybe all people could agree on and maybe not individual religious traditions. Thomas Jefferson wrote about the role of religion in society. And he was very clear that the government should take no you know position um, on matters except those things upon which there was sort of um, strong uh, uh, consensus and agreement. So you know the, the the challenge that you're describing is that logic itself um, is is also not, enough. Uh, so for example, I look, I, I said to you, my, my life matters. Okay. And the correlate of that is thou shalt not murder. Okay. There is, there's no logical reason why murder should be, uh, well, you can say, I don't want to live in a world where, you know, where, where murder takes place, but, um, there's lots of times when unethical behavior becomes, uh, you know, becomes what people think should happen. And so religion, I think, functions in the realm of providing um, healthy ethical checks on the on the bounds of rational discourse. Because rational discourse doesn't do, I don't think rational discourse contains within them the ability to to check itself. You are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. Bishop Ronald Godby of the River Church is coming up after this short break.
hi, Bishop Rondell. Nice to meet you. My pleasure, Mark. Do you happen to have a belief you wish to discuss? Oh, absolutely. My faith. I'm a Christian and, you know, what some would say a born-again believer. <laughs> but, you know, um, my faith is in Christ Jesus, uh, the price that he paid for my sins on the cross, and engrafted me into a covenant that without him I had no right to. And so every day I live to express my faith, uh, not by beating people over the head with Bible, but by expressing to them the grace and the mercy and the kindness that was given to me in what I believe was extended to me on the cross through Christ Jesus. On a scale from one to seven, how confident would you say that your belief is true? Oh, seven. It's what I have given my life to. And so if it's not a seven, then I've been tricked and I've been duped greatly. So definitely a seven. Um, I'm totally committed to my faith. Uh, not in a place of, in a space of ignorance to believe that I possess the only covenant and the only relationship with a self-existing God, uh, but to understand that I, that is a part of how I was engrafted into that covenant. And so, yeah, totally committed, 100% seven. On a scale from one to seven, how important is it to you in believing in things that are true? Oh, seven. Again, you know, if you can't live according to your truth, then it's not truth. Truth should be absolute, and it has to be absolute to the believer. And so if it's not concretized and it's not a part of who you are, then it shouldn't be believed. How do you know your belief is true? I know that my belief is true because of my experience. It's not predicated upon what someone else says. It's predicated upon what I've experienced. And so for me, faith is not just an abstract. It is an opportunity to embrace what I've come to know and what I've come to see and what I've come to feel and how it has expressed itself in relationships and in my total being. And so 100% confident. So through personal experience, seems to be the primary way you've known that this belief is true. Oh, absolutely. Uh, truth um, becomes absolute, not just because it's relevant, but because it's been experienced. You know, um, otherwise it's just a hypothesis. You know, it's something that lives in the gray. But no one can refute your experience. No one can refute what you have gone through. And that's the beauty about faith. Again, it's not just something that lives in the grave, but it's something that lives in our life every day. Is personal experience a reliable way to know whether something is true? Yeah, for the believer it is. Uh, when we talk about belief and when we talk about faith, it has to be owned by the person who's experiencing it. And I do believe that that's a credible way to come to a conclusion. Again, that is what gives us that uh, irrefutable space that we call belief is when we have gone through something that is not reliable upon someone else's facts or someone else's conclusion, but it's because we have evidence in our experience that really helps us dig into that space to know that this is real for me. So absolutely. If, just for example, Todd is sitting next to you and Todd is um, a Muslim and he believes in Islam, 
and he says that uh, Islam is true, and because of his personal experience, and he believes it full heartedly. How would a third party be able to distinguish the truth value of what you believe and what Todd believes? Sure. And I think that that's the space that we've erred in, is believing that my experience contradicts someone else's. Um, I believe that God has to be revealed to us individually. And for me to disregard and deny Todd's experience, I think, is ignorance. And so it has to be allowed. And then the third party has to then weigh it against his or her own personal experiences to come to their conclusion. And so that's what is beautiful about not just living as an island and as an individual. It gives us an opportunity to discover many different paths and to find our way to our own personal truth. You know, uh, truth is sometimes subjective, and I know that we don't like to believe that, but it really is. Um, because again, to take away the person's own experience, I think is to rob them of the opportunity to say what truth is. And so I can't in any way deny or disrespect or disregard someone else's experience and how they've arrived at their truth. It needs to be factored in and it needs to be appreciated. Whether that changes or alters my perspective or not says that whether says that what I've been declaring as truth for myself is truth because it does not need to be complicated because someone else has had an experience and has come to a different conclusion. I'm not living my life according to their truth. I'm living my life according to mine. I'm just trying to understand you better because at the very beginning you were talking about absolute truth, but now you're, I guess you're saying that truth is subjective to the individual. I'm just trying to see where you're Coming yeah, from. which brings me to my absolute truth. And so for me, truth is absolute. But I've come to that because in many ways it is subjective. I think that it's not one or the other. It's and in both. So there is a space where truth can be subjective because it can be based upon my own personal experience which brings me to my absolute truth. And so here's the question, does my absolute truth have to become someone else's? No, it doesn't. For me, it has to be absolute. For me, it has to be concretized. For me, it has to be irrefutable. And I've arrived to that conclusion based upon my experiences, based upon my information, based upon my opportunity to grow to that space. Do we all get there without those uh, different ingredients? Absolutely not. And so, yeah, so for me, I can give you your space to believe what you need to believe. And that's where the subjective part comes in. Well, let's talk more about that, how truth is subjective. For example, if I have a bowl of marbles here mm -hmm. and the number is going to be either even or odd. Sure. And if I say they're even, mm -hmm. either it's true or it's not true. Sure. Right. I'm trying to understand how that truth is subjective. Because it's tangible and touchable, it's absolute. 
when we talk about faith, we're talking about things that are sometimes not tangible and touchable. So that's when we have to arrive at truth. And that's when we have to discover truth is because it's not tangible and touchable. It's just that it is it is something that we cannot point to how many marbles are in the dish. And so if we cannot point to how many marbles are in the dish, then that's where faith takes us on a journey to discover how many marbles are in the dish. And by faith, what do we mean? By faith, we're talking about a total reliance and a confidence in who the higher power is, who the creator is, who is the cause of everything, who is God. And so again, because there is no bowl with God in it that I can count and say that many marbles makes up God. That's when the subjectivity of faith comes in and tr truth comes in. And I have to measure it according to what I've discovered as my moral compass. What is directing me to that conclusion? What is bringing me to that outcome? And that may, dras that may differ drastically with Todd, who is, again, on his path and on his journey to find that out, who has to discover how many marbles are in that bowl. When discussing the definition of faith, you said it's confidence. Is sure. that how you're describing faith? Sure, absolutely. Uh, from my definition and from my theological approach towards what faith is, it is a moral reliance upon the creeds and the codes of Christ. It is an absolute trust in what I read in Scripture. It is an absolute trust and confidence in who I have concluded God is. Absent of that, there is no thing called faith. You know, there is a reliance and there is a, a, a confidence in who Scripture say, says God is. If I don't have that, then that cannot be a part of my experience and I can't come to that conclusion. Is confidence and trust, are those reliable ways to know whether something is true or are there other ways? I'm just trying to see how you see that. Sure. Yeah. Um, again, it wouldn't be faith without those components. And so, again, for a self-existing God who is not visible, who is, is seemingly not touchable and tangible, uh, that is the path and the route that he has given to me to find him. And I discover him in those spaces uh, because without trust and without having confidence in who it is that I say that I trust, then, yeah, to some it sounds foolish because where is God? How, when have you seen him? You know, what's his address? How do I visit him? You know, so except I apply these components, then I cannot come to those conclusions. And so absolutely, for me, those are the best paths to discovering who that God is. Um, again, for a non-believer, would they contend with that? Absolutely so. I'm sure they would. Uh, but then that wouldn't make it faith, would it? Uh, if it has to be, you know, something that is seen and something that is tangible and something that is visible, then we really don't need to have faith in it. You've talked about your strong faith in Jesus Christ. If your faith was incorrect, 
I'm not sure. saying that's the case, but mm-hmm. if it was, mm-hmm. how would you know that it was? Yeah, if it were incorrect, then I have still spent the best. Uh, I've expended the best time that I could have ever expended with the life that I've been given. Um, again, the results have been a love for humanity, the service of humanity, the ability to invest and continue to involve myself in the life of the broken. And so let's say that it was the greatest lie ever told. It would have still become the greatest truth ever received because it brought me to some of the greatest conclusions, some of the greatest relationships. And I've done some of the greatest work as a result of my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, that's really interesting. You say that if by chance that yeah. your faith was incorrect, that you fundamentally wouldn't change. You'd be the same person that you would help people. You would be a guider of people. You would pick up the broken. And that's interesting of you to say. It seems like that's something that's fundamental to you. Oh, absolutely. It's part of my core values. It's part of my belief system. You know, it is who I am. You know, again, I don't think that faith uh, is anything that is counter to what your core beliefs and what your core values are as an individual, I believe that it is the thing that connects you. And so when I look at Christ in Scripture and I see who He is, even as a human being, I don't even have to get to the spirituality of who He is, just who He is as a human. If I look at Him in all of His uh, uh, and take away all of His divinity and just receive Him as a person— He's one of the greatest people to ever walk the planet. And so to to follow that pattern and to apply that to my life, uh, I've in no way been deceived. I've been invited into an opportunity to, again, experience the greatest life that I ever could by living according to that pattern. We talked about Todd. If, for example, Michael is sitting next to you sure. and Michael doesn't believe in any religion, let's say. Yet Michael feels the need to help people and to guide people and to pick up the broken. What do we say about Michael, about what is guiding Michael's motivations? Yeah, that's where I differ from most. I don't believe that I again have to bring Michael into my way of believing. I have to encourage him in the things that he believes. And if Michael believes that just simply helping humanity is his call and, and what his what his being is to be given to, I think he's to be supported in that. And in doing so, I give him an opportunity to see and to discover why I live my life according to my value system and my faith belief and, and why I've come to the conclusion that I've come to. For too long, we've tried to project onto others what we have received for ourselves. And so faith is personal. It's something that should be shared. It's something that should be lived. And in living it, people get an opportunity to, to be partakers of the revelation of it. But they should never be forced into anything, or then it's not faith. It seems that you put faith at a very high level in your life. Given the choice to know something, would you rather have faith that something is true, or would you rather have strong evidence that something is true? 
Yeah. I'd rather have faith. Um, and that gives me that moral reliance and that dependency upon something bigger than myself. Um, if I knew 100% emphatically um, and I could lean to what I knew, I think knowledge can be tested. Knowledge can be tried where faith is inexhaustible. Faith can't be tried. Faith is something that goes beyond our human ability. It is supernatural. It is something that helps us live beyond ourselves and something that takes us into something greater than who we really are. Why do you think it's so difficult for people, and we're having this conversation, and hopefully we're having a good conversation. Sure. Why do you think it's so difficult for people people of different faiths, and maybe I'm saying it's so difficult because maybe that's just my experience of sure. it, to have these conversations. Yeah. Um, again, you're here with me today because of a recommendation from my dear friend, Rabbi Daniel Graber, one of my best friends on the planet, a man that I love with all that I am. His family knows my family. My family knows his. Um, he's a friend. He's a friend because we've We've come to the conclusion that we're not here to convert each other. We're here to love each other. And if your faith is real and my faith is real, then it should bring us to a common space that where we discover the uniqueness and the likeness of faith, which brings us core values and common bonds that we should be able to agree on. Mm. And we shouldn't have to look at where we disagree, but we should find the spaces and the places where we do agree. I think that if that conventional wisdom were translated throughout all faith traditions, Mm -hmm. we would find that place of agreement. We would find the beauty in the relationships that we could share. So I've been to his home for Shabbat dinner. They've been to our church for worship service. And at the end of the day, I'm still a great Christian. He's mm-hmm. still a wonderful Jew, and I love him for who he is, and he loves me for who I am. And we feel no pressure or or even any desire to have to convert each other. Yeah. yeah. And I think that if, if everyone could agree to find that space, that wisdom would then take us into a place of wholeness mm. and health and really what holiness really is, and that's wholeness in our faiths. And that's where I pray that the world finds and and the space that I pray that we all find as believers. What is that commonality, do you think, that we all have or are striving for? Yeah, Hopefully we, many people. Sure, have. yeah, we all have human needs and human desires and 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 final places of rest that we're trying to make it to. And it takes the same for each of us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, whether we're bond or free. We all have the same human needs. And when we discover that, then we can get beyond the things that separate us in faith and we can find common ground and we can help each other find the basic human needs that I think every faith teaches us to do. And that is to care for our neighbor. Christ was asked the question, who then is my neighbor? My neighbor is whoever is next to me. They're not separated by skin color, by ethnic group, by 
religious preference. It's just whoever's next to me. And so that's what I love about Christianity is it doesn't seek to divide. It's a removing of the table, which the table is what separates most in faith. Most faiths can't sit at the same table with other people. Christianity, we can sit at the table with all. And the beauty of my faith is that I can sit with whomever my neighbor is. And I don't have to qualify them by covenant. I don't have to qualify them by do's or don'ts. I can receive them for who they are. And if every faith group could get to that place, man, we'd find a much better world. and We'll find a much better place here. It seems like we live in a time where certain ways we as a country are moving backwards from that, away from those goals. Why is that, do you think? What's, what's going on with us here? Yeah, and that's what's scary. You know, um, I would agree with you. When we lose ground in those areas, we have lost more than we can imagine. I don't care how financially prosperous we are. I don't care how much of a world power we are. When we lose the fabric of who we are as a nation and as a people, and when we stop being that great melting pot in that place where all, where all are welcome, in that place where all are given an opportunity to just meet those basic human needs, I think that that's when we lose sight of who we really are and what we're really called to be. And yeah, it's very troubling to me as a leader, to me as a faith leader, um, to see us losing ground in those areas. As an African-American male, um, I'm experiencing things at 49 years old that I've never experienced in my entire life. And those are things that sometimes do work against your hope and work against your belief. And you wonder, how can we go backwards? Uh, but I think that that's why moments like this are important to call people to action and to raise our conscience and say, hey, we can't go back. We got to continue to find what's in front of us. And so, man, here I am, African-American male sitting here talking with a Caucasian male and we're having a conversation and we're working through some things and maybe our perspectives differ greatly. And maybe I've said some things that you don't understand and maybe you've said, asked some questions that I may not be clear on, but we're still committed to finding the end of our journey. And I think that that's, again, what wisdom looks like and that's the place that I pray that we find again. Seems like you do have hope for the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, without hope, uh, we're all miserable. And so, again, that's where faith is bigger than anything. Faith is bigger than this moment. And what I hope and what I trust and what I believe and what I have confidence in is what gives me the desire to wake up every day and find it and to work for it and to fight for it and to even give my life for it. So, absolutely. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week.
WHUP 